Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We are all bow hunting all the time. And today we're going to talk a little deer management, preseason prep, and whatever else is on the mind of my illustrious guest, none other than Whitetails columnist and the proprietor of a drop time seed company and drop time wildlife consulting, Mr. Jason Snavely. How are you, sir? Hey, Christian. Good morning. I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. You are just back in Pennsylvania, nestled in the crib from two weeks out west in Montana. I am, yeah. So I'm you know that's that's a good warning for you is I'm two weeks off of vacation. Almost fell in a groundhog hole. So I sent you this text before the podcast because I'm a field biologist, right? And I don't like to be in the office. So I'm just in the field. Um, no topic specific today. But uh, maybe this is the first one is to me, food plotting or being a wildlife manager, hunter, manager, whatever you are, is all about getting out there. There's deer poop. There's, there's just so much going on in the field. Um, it frustrates me when I see a lot of biologists just sitting in an office somewhere. This is where we learn. This is our, oh, I can flip this around. This is our lab. This is where we observe. And this is where we learn. I think right now there's just an awful lot of, of just re, rehashing, repeating, copying, and stealing the same information. And we, we lack people. You don't have to be a biologist. Uh, hunters, right? I mean, just a hunter out scouting and observing. I think we lack people who, uh, who, who work on that, that skill. So well, there's that. I don't, I don't think that there's a whole lot new in our whole industry right now, which has been a common theme that I've been coming back to in my own mind, whether it's equipment, whether it's tactics, well, you know, habitat management on your end. I mean, we had a big sea change in the habitat management side, maybe over the last five to 10 years. We've seen, you know, a lot of the things that you were an early adopter on have gotten more mainstream, you know, whether it's roller crimping, whether it's going to seed blends with a lot more variety of uh, plants in them and that sort of thing. But, you know, for the most part, there's not a lot of earth shattering stuff right now in the hunting world. Well, I think, you know, I think what we are doing right now and have been as the insects just jump in, I mean, that's a whole podcast in and of itself with turkey populations lately. But, you know, what we have been doing and mostly my clients have been doing um, in the last, I guess, eight, nine years, really, to me has been mind blowing. And just to give you an example, you know, a lot of my clients go back 20 years. And of course, if you go to South Texas, managing for as you know you've hunted down there intensively it's 86 degrees today and it's and there's a lot of bugs in this field so if i'm swatting uh it's a good sign but you know obviously south texas is really the the birthplace of intensive deer management and to each his own um but i've had clients you know 20 plus years say okay we've hit a glass ceiling we've hit a plateau um I just got hired before I left for vacation by a new client in Wisconsin. Perfect example. This, this particular gentleman probably does not need a wildlife consultant, to be honest with you. He could probably be a wildlife consultant, 
Um, and he's just a professional. He owns his own business. But he's been doing, he's been managing in Wisconsin, which, as you know, is a, a trophy-producing state in its own right, for, gosh, 30 years. Uh, but he called me up and he said, I think what you're doing is is the next best thing. And I said, I, I, I agree. And we looked at his bucks and at maturity, you know, he's got some 180s, 190s and has actually killed some 200 plus inch animals. But he firmly believes, and I agree with him, that he can consistently kill more of those bucks at maturity if he focuses on nutrient density and, and just really the holistic regenerative soil health movement. So I think that's pretty exciting, you know, and the stuff that, that I get to see, um, I learn just as much from clients as they learn from me, but the stuff that I get to see from them, um, is, is, I just choked on a bug is pretty astounding. And they make observations out here in the field and, um, report back. So we're all just learning, learning together. This is a, um, even though it's nature's nature's approach, this is a relatively new new approach. So we're all kind of learning together and having fun. All right. So I'm going to back you up a little bit because we're here in mid July, and before yeah. we dive into all this regenerative talk and get too deep, we need to back it up a little bit for for the average deer hunter. And before we even do that. I got to pay the bills, Mr. Snavely. And so did, did you know who the uh, bow hunting podcast is presented by now? Um, did you tell me? No, but it's funny you should ask, and I appreciate I you asking. It's presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. Oh, no so, kidding. Yeah, so for all right your here bow hunting, right here down the road in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I so, love those guys. They are good guys, and I want everyone to know that for all your bow hunting needs, you want to visit LancasterArchery.com. They've got the gear. They've got the knowledge. They've got the passion. And I love that tagline because everybody that I have as a guest on this podcast is passionate about what they do, whether it's bow hunting, habitat management, whatever. So it's always a great segue to do my read and come back to a guy like you who is you know, a trained wildlife biologist who has a passion for white-tailed deer. And absolutely, uh, because I know you and have for some years now, you're way more passionate about growing deer and managing habitat than you are about hunting them. And that's not <laughs> a knock on your hunting interest by any means. You're a you're a very serious bow hunter and you do a lot of hunting, you know, with your kids as well. But it just is to say that I think you have a deeper appreciation for the whole process. And, you know, just like you talked about playing with what you can do as a habitat manager to maximize sort of the benefits for the deer but probably a whole lot of other wildlife species in the process and doing that in a way that's not only leading to our selfish, if you want to call it that, you know, our hunter minded goals, which is bigger antlered bucks, but actually it's enlightened self-interest in a lot of ways with some of these newer methods that you're promoting because yes, we're getting bigger bucks. Yes, we're getting better bow hunting. We're getting maybe more deer sightings, but we're also actually doing things that are better for the environment 
than the quote unquote traditional methods of commercial agriculture, if you will. Yeah, I, I've always been a bow hunter, and that's how it started for me was sneaking out of ninth period study hall. Well, with with the permission of my ninth period study hall teacher, which probably wouldn't happen today. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, when when I started to bow hunt and plant food plots, it's just something clicked, and and I enjoy it absolutely. But you know, in recent years, I guess in the last decade, um, really getting out here and learning from nature has been mind blowing. That that it's you can't you can't learn if you're not out here learning on your own through observation. So yeah, you know, I do. I I still love the bow hunt and and plan to do more of it um, this year, and uh, and get back to doing more of it, but. Unfortunately, if I go bow hunting, I I, I kind of have that ADHD, and I get distracted, and I'm wondering what's going on over here, and I'm I'm probably not a very good bow hunter because as a trained biologist, I I'm trained by nature. I'm, I'm sponsored by nature, I guess. Um, if I see something, I have to go ask why. And in a while, it's exciting to to get your biology, your wildlife biology degree, and your wildlife science degree. There's nothing better than having that basic understanding and foundation of biology and then continuing on. I mean, the true definition of a professional, whether you're a, a teacher or a, an editor or whoever, a doctor, a lawyer, is continuing your education. So, you know, th this to me is where we should continue our education is in the field. There, there's so much going on here. It, it's, and that's why I wanted to come out in the field today. Um, I was telling you, I'd re recorded a podcast with a gentleman who wanted to understand, is a very good podcast, he wanted to understand regenerative wildlife agriculture and soil health. So I filmed myself in the middle of a field, which I, I've since crimped and, and, and pasture, uh, basically pasture cropped, planted right into it. Um, but he was amazed with the number of insects that I was swatting and just the, the pure diversity that was standing behind me, which is now down on the, the soil surface where I want it. So um, to that, yes, I'm absolutely addicted. And, you know, after spending, um, I guess it was the better part of, of a decade and a half, uh, you know, incorporating the textbook and the conventional, traditional sort of, you know, deer biology, management, food plotting, um, you know, this whole new system, which is really just engineered and designed and perfected by nature, has has just changed the game tremendously. And I wish it could be, people keep asking, you know, will you write a book on it? Uh, maybe someday, but yeah, there's, there's, there, there would be two, especially an editor like you, there's too much. It's, it's, it's a massive volume of work. And I, if, you know, I, I brought my favorite tool today to encourage people um, to, to get out and use this tool. It's a very simple tool. It's a very cheap tool. I bet most of you have it in the barn, but nobody uses the tool. And, I just had an email, um, uh, sort of a communication with a, with a seed customer last night. And he told me all about above ground growth. He told me how, you know, some of it stunted during the drought and then we had some rain and it did, did decent. And, you know, this particular weed profile came through and everything was detailed about above ground. But what he forgot to mention was everything below ground. And I asked him when the last time was he took a walk with his spade or shovel, whatever floats your boat. And he said, never, I never do. And to me, I said, well, you're missing, you're missing 99% of what's going on because everything is driven in that soil, from that soil microbiome. And he was simply looking at, and, and don't get me wrong, what 
what realizes or, or what expresses above ground is, is, a, is sort of a, a book in and of itself about what's going on underneath the ground. But I wish more people would learn how to uh, dig a hole. Dig a, you don't have to dig, dig a deep hole. Um, zero to six inches, zero to eight inches, and just look and observe and smell and, and see what's going on in that field. Well, one of the one of the reasons that maybe, you know, it, it's it's not as easy to preach the gospel as we wish it were on some of this stuff, Jason, is uh, dirt. You know, dirt is not going to strike the average person as the most exciting topic. But when I can't you're, believe that. Well, you know, I know you're kind of a dirt geek, but I mean, it, it is true. And I think most serious deer hunters know this, like why? You know why uh, are like the Mississippi River corridor? Why why is some of the very best deer hunting in the world found there? It's the the soil qualities. You know, you go out to Illinois or Missouri or Kansas or some of these areas, Iowa, where the agricultural you know uh, production is so high. Well, why is that? Because the dirt is nothing more or the plants rather are, are uh, drawing nutrients from the soil. And so from a, from a deer hunter's perspective, the, you know, the plants are nothing more than a nutrient transfer device, taking nutrients from the dirt, you know, above the ground and consuming I, that, I, you know, in a way, I used to say that I think a plant, there's a lot of plants right here that are, that are kind of pissed that you just said that because they actually feel like they do a little bit more than that. But to a white-tailed deer, from a white-tailed deer's perspective, I would agree that it, it's 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 a transfer agent, not just nutrients, but of, of various medicinal um, compounds and 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 a whole other suite of things that we don't need to get into. But well, yeah, sure, I, but I, I, I'm but but I mean those those plants would all be nothing without the dirt, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they can grow as you see in hydroponics, which I think is a, a complete disaster, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, absolutely. The soil, the soil microbiome is extremely important. And I know it's, it's hard to talk about it a lot, but, you know, kind of bringing this back to what does this have to do with a bow hunter? Um, you may recall my, a series of columns, I don't know how many years ago, five or six about Lyme disease. When I got Lyme disease, um, I quickly realized that the conventional doctors, physicians really didn't know much about it. Um, not, not, not necessarily their fault. But uh, then you find these Lyme literate docs, and some of them kind of knew a little bit more about it. But I, I realized, and I think it made it easier for me to do this because of my biology background, but I quickly realized that I was going to have to teach myself about what kind of dysfunction was going on in my body and that it wasn't necessarily the tick or, or the specific microbe that jumped on board to, to wreak havoc in my body but it was the condition of my body when I got bit by that tick or ticks from quite frankly, Mexico up to the peace river, um, in Canada. So, you know, th that's, that's what forced me to learn. I still love bow hunting, but that's what forced me to learn about how to optimize soil health so that we can optimize or maximize the health of white-tailed deer, right? That's ultimately my job. Um, I know it sounds sometimes great and sexy and hard to believe, but my job is to make every single property that I'm hired on an island and as unique as I possibly can. Well, let's let's back up and talk about that and start with this field that you're in. 
because I don't know yeah. where where this field is at uh, in the actually you've been, so you've been in this field. Well, I have, I have, but, um, but, 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 but what I'm saying is I don't know where it's at in your annual yeah. cycle of plantings and crimpings and growings. But uh, what I want to say is, you know, it looks like a weed field and most people would say, Hey, this looks like a weed field. And I know a big part of what you preach with regenerative wildlife agriculture is we've got to change our, our mindset of what a food plot should, should look like to the, to the eye of man. Yeah, and I don't know that necessarily we have to. I think if if this is what you're interested in, um, and there's a there's a whole suite of reasons that you I think you should be as a as a deer hunter, um, this is an option. Do you have to do this to all of your uh, all of your acreage and food plots? Absolutely not. If the deer could talk, it is my opinion that they that they love this particular management. And you see, I just had a client uh, ask me yesterday, how come this guy's field food plots look so good and I don't know the guy but it was a video and he sent me a picture of it and he said you know well, my question to him was well what you know what is his management right and and why are you comparing how how his food plots look to how your food plots look do the two of you have the same goals so this field takes guts for me to stand in as a wildlife biologist and a consultant but I think this is what let me flip this around I'm trying to carry too many props this is what people need to see and hear and talk about right now as food plotters. If I would have brought you into this field before the drought, um, it would have looked completely different. We had a lot of cool season annuals, which I crimped down, as you kind of alluded to. And you will notice that I have all of that plant residue right here. Now, this has right. been... I'll refer gosh, to that as... I'll refer to that as dead stuff in, in layman's yeah. parlance. Okay. Sure. You've thatch. got a bunch of, yes, you got a lot of thatch laying on the surface of your soil there. Right. Or, you know, a lot of people put mulch around their landscaping at their homes. Um, and that's really what it's serving. Now you'll notice that some of the species that I had in here before perennials have managed to pop back through. That's clover, obviously. And I'm already feeling moisture. Now, we had rain. A lot of people think I have great soils. There's a rock right there. So we have a lot of rocks. This was farmed conventionally for a long time, and I think recreational tillage might have been his thing. Um, but there's a lot of moisture in that soil, and there's, there's a lot of aggregates, and there's a lot of organic matter, that living plant residue or thatch, as you called it. And, you know, one of the things I want to point out about this field this field, we will kill a mature buck out of this field. There is a redneck blind over there. I don't know if you can see it in that corner. Um, there's also two of them back there. And the reason for so many is because my kids, when they were younger, uh, rifle hunting and then also observe. We, we like to observe deer. We spend hours just observing. My 13-year-old daughter last night asked me to go to the blind just to observe deer. And, and watching this field... Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of points that I can, <clears throat> that I can say in this field, but walking around this field, you'll notice there's just a, a, a massive amount of diversity. Now, some people see the ragweed and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, there's a cowpea there. There's obviously some, some clover, perennial clover. There's buckwheat that's actually been chomped on. Um, there are soybeans, cowpeas, buckwheat. Uh, here's a soybean reaching up through right there. 
and and, so, and a lot, you know. So what have you actually planted in here, Jason? So so la- this field started last fall. Um, we planted a what I call fall reload last year. And fall reload, fall nourishment are, are kind of like sister plantings for me. They both have species that attract wildlife or attract deer during the deer season so that you can kill deer, obviously. But more importantly, they have plant species that will come back the following spring and then grow into early summer. And, and you know, we do that almost every year, although we rotate a lot. But the key, the reason that that helped us win last year, or I should say this year, is because we happened to, as most of you know, we happened to hit a nasty drought. And if you were in that conventional model where in whether it's turkey season for you or April, May, whatever, and you're disking up, plowing up your fields or whatever, you would have been pretty close to hitting a new stand in that drought. I left my cool season annuals come back. They had already established in the fall. They came back and they grew through soil moisture. So we retained a lot more moisture, as you can see, um, with all that, that thatch or, or mulch. And they, they basically were more resilient, stretched through that drought dry period. And I was able to just let them do their thing. And, you know, a lot of people panic and they say, well, there's cereal rye in there. And, you know, those mature seed heads are going to produce a viable seed. And that's going to be a problem or a weed in the plot and i disagree with that completely i don't know if i could do this or not but there you see is a cereal rye head that somebody plucked the top off of probably birds probably not deer um and there's there are a couple of heads that that are still on but most of them roller crimp terminated down at the, the ground surface where the microbes can start chewing them up and consuming those and obviously some some did stay stay standing. So I came in and I swear to God, I didn't plant this, but there's a turkey feather for you. Um, but I came in then after the drought somewhat passed and roller crimped it down. And then I drilled in warm season annuals, um, just a mix of 15, 17 different, different warm seasons. There's actually some corn in this row that's gotten chomped. Um, cowpeas, more corn, sorghum Sudan, cowpeas. And, and you'll, you'll notice, one thing you'll notice, this is what I talk, when I talk about reading nature, that's sort of a hollow point, right? Without mentioning what the heck that means. But I noticed that a lot of my legumes are doing better in this particular blend. Now there is sorghum, sorghum Sudan, um, are some oats growing in here, but a lot of the legumes, meaning that's a soybean there. Um, this is a forb. That's buckwheat. Everybody knows that. But, you know, when we planted a more of a heavier carbon in, in that, uh, by carbon, I mean grasses. We had, I had a lot of grasses in that fall plot that would then come back spring, summer. You have a carbon-nitrogen ratio, and the soil is chasing that carbon-nitrogen ratio. So when it throws a, a particular species, it's telling me that it's looking for more nitrogen. Right. And the other thing I want to mention is I want my deer to work. I don't want to make them too lazy and I don't want them standing in a monoculture. And actually on the other side of that hedgerow is a monoculture soybean field. 
And then the next, there's a hedgerow. And then the next field is actually a monoculture string bean field. So <laughs> a, a lot of monoculture in the area. And it's the perfect opportunity to observe deer and see what they prefer. Now, I'd be lying if I said that they weren't out in those monoculture fields. But they're in this field an awful lot, as are the turkeys, as evidenced by all the deer droppings and the fact that we will stand in that or sit in those redneck blinds and just observe deer. So back to my point about, you know, I'm walking around right now. This, this rings true, you know, right now during the warm season, as well as during the hunting season, I want to make my deer work for food. Right. And, and, you know, I want them to walk around and I want them to have options. If, if they're looking for a specific grass and deer do eat grass, I want them to, let me flip this again. I want them to work. I want them to walk around and I want them to find what they're looking for specifically. For a number of reasons. Number one, that's what they're engineered to do. They're engineered to walk around and work. Number two, during the hunting season, the more I get them on their feet on my property, obviously the more susceptible they are to me shooting them. So there's a lot of reasons. And then the diversity, you know, there's, there's actually some milkweed growing here, which is another that. benefit. I was going to yeah, ask you, are you trying to, trying to help monarch butterflies or is that good for deer? Absolutely. Love to, love to help anything in a, in a holistic systems approach. Um, it's all about the whole system. And I have, I actually have a bee yard down there. I don't know if you can see that or not, but those a bees bee, are, are a bee yard. What's a, a bee, bee yard? yard. That, that just means that I have beehives. In a, in a designated bee area. And, and a lot of this, quite frankly, especially as you get closer to my bees over there, a lot of this is planted specifically for the honeybees because I believe they complete an ecology, even though they're not a, a native species. Um, so a lot of the nectar and a lot of the uh, pollen in here is obviously goes, goes to them. But uh, so yeah, this is how I want my deer. I'm just kind of meandering around here. And if you watch our deer, they will do this. They will move around. They will seek out specific plants. I know that's probably hard to believe, um, but there's soybeans there. And, and if you get down on your hands and knees, you see a lot of other smaller plants that are trying to poke through. But, you know, whitetails, I think we've talked about this before, and I have briefly in my, my column, is whitetails are absolutely um, in in tune with what they need, right? They can't just go to the pharmacy and, and pick up a drug or a steroid or uh, a vaccine or whatever. They have to do what, what those chemists do when they create those heroic drugs. They have to come out here and they have to consume plants that also have microbes in and on them. So I like to give them options and, and I like to make them work and make them move. Well, I mean, it makes sense. And honestly, if you ever observe deer, again, it just comes down to if you're a deer hunter, you see this all the time. And to your point, you know, you can have an entire field of soybeans or corn or whatever. And yeah, you see deer come out into those fields and feed on what's there, but they're always nibbling on you know, something else along the edge of the woods or something in the tractor path or whatever. And of course, as you see deer moving through the woods, they're grabbing, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And yeah. 
it is amazing that, you know, they sort of know. I mean, to me, right, I mean, like, I'm a person of faith, and so to me, it actually makes perfect sense, like, how does a deer know, you know, if they've got, you know, this problem or that problem, that they're going to seek out these certain plants, you know, with different chemical compounds, as you talk about, that are beneficial for that. Well, I mean, to me, it points to just the design of nature, but uh, it is amazing, it, it, you know, in that they have the ability to do that because, you know, you, you do you do sort of sit and wonder, you know, how much of that is is conscious thought versus just instinct. And um, But you think about a food plot like yours, and again, I say, you know, not to be funny or critical or anything, like just literally to help people understand, it looks like a wheat field, you know? And so I don't know how many different species of plants are out there, but the proof is in the pudding. You know, it's not about if your goal is to provide for deer and kill deer, it doesn't really matter what your food plot looks like if it's effective. Well, and that's the funny part is we, we find ourselves calling these fields you know, ugly plots, as a lot of my clients refer to them, and I started referring to them, ugly plots. If you think about what a weed is, and you can go with agricultural direction or the deer direction, to a deer, uh, a forb, a weed is a forb. To a deer, a weed is a plant, right? So we, we kind of get this, um, this, I guess it would be egocentric as well as, as humanistic approach to what a plant is. And because we didn't buy it in a sack and it's not on the seed tag or bag, wherever you're from, um, that means that we don't want to see it. And, and we have to spray a toxin to kill it. The whitetails don't necessarily want that, trust me. Um, and we can go down that whole toxin rabbit hole with glyphosate and now everything else that we're going to um, incorporate into spraying all over. I mean, they're, they're currently spraying the soybeans and string beans. And we're watching deer walk across those those fields and consume those chemicals that were just sprayed on the plant. That's just that's massively destructive uh, to, to the wildlife that we all love. So, you know, but the other thing is, I guess, going back to that weed comment and, and a nasty, messy weed field, that's what deer prefer. That's what deer eat. Right. It doesn't this may not make a good magazine cover for a, a nonprofit, you know, magazine or publication or whatever um to me it does but to many it doesn't but to a whitetail it's important to understand that if you know before monoculture agriculture whitetails likely consumed 150 200 250 different plants right they don't need to eat and if you ever watch them out in my field this field here um they will they will nibble on you know, some legumes a little bit. They'll hit the, the soybeans, the cowpeas, maybe even some sun hemp, um, but then they'll move on quickly to ragweed, to even some of the, the uh, ryegrass. And, and uh, lately they've been hitting, hitting the corn and the sorghum, which makes sense to me for a whole nother reason. But uh, yeah, I think we need to change. We need to, we need to think about what whitetails want, not what we want and what looks good. And the great thing about this is, this system allows you to get rid of chemicals. There's absolutely, well, I shouldn't say chemicals, or uh, rid of well, man-made yeah. synthetic garbage. So so let's dive into that next. But just to reinforce what you said, you know, in my previous life, before I was the editor at Peterson's Bowhunting, I was the outdoor writer 
at a newspaper here in Pennsylvania, and I used to write about a more wide variety of topics dealing with nature, you know, so literally other animal species, plants, things like that. I remember I did an article one time just about the dandelion. Okay, so we could hold this up as a that is a quote unquote weed, right? People who buy Scott's weed and feed don't want to see dandelions in their yards. But if you look at the history of the dandelion and all the different things that Native Americans use that plant for, it was used to make like a tea. It was used to treat different, you know, maladies. And uh, there's all kinds of animals that will eat dandelions, as well as think about even our own grandparents. So that's just two generations removed from us, right? And when our grandparents were alive, dandelion wine and dandelion salad and things like that would have been very common things that we would have consumed those dandelions. So a lot of times what we think of as a weed today is like you say, it's just a plant that isn't necessarily the particular plant that we want to see in an area where we're doing monoculture, which is could be a yard where all we want to see is, you know, bluegrass or Bermuda grass or whatever. And so we only want one particular species of grass, or it could be in a farmer's field where he wants to see nothing but pioneer Roundup ready soybeans and nothing else, or a particular kind of corn and nothing else, but it doesn't mean that those plants are bad. Yeah, I think you opened up, and that was a perfect segue to where I'm at right now. This is why I stopped here. Um, really didn't plan it, but um, boy, there's so many different directions to go there. What are we looking at here, Jason? There, I see two different right. kinds of plants. There's, so so there's, I'm just I'm focusing yeah, on the ragweed. Let's talk okay, about ragweed. Ragweed. So we, we all, okay, hang on now, because this is going to be, this better be good because you're going to sing the praises. I assume you're about to sing the praises of ragweed, which is probably going to give me all kinds of uh, nasal congestion here in August. Um, let's see here. Get down here and just, I want to see which, yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to make you mad about ragweed. So keep in mind, I'm a seedsman, right? I make money <clears throat> selling seed. And uh, th this, in my opinion, is one of my favorite cover crop seeds. And this is the, the perfect example of working with nature and not against nature. Um, I, you know, I've had the farm now for 17 years, I guess. And ragweed has always been and probably will always be the dominant plant in my fields. And I used to panic about that. And then I said, okay, if I'm going to work with nature, I guess the fact that ragweed is growing here is probably telling me something. Maybe I should make this a class. So I started to study ragweed. And, and you, I just told a client last night, you have to do this. And if you're not interested, you know, people watch all these videos and YouTube channels and whatever about regenerative agriculture and you know we're going to get rid of synthetic night or fertilizers and we're going to get rid of chemicals and we're going to save money and we're going to grow you know more bigger deer that all sounds sexy but how are we going to do that what let, let's take it the next step and and a lot of them just haven't figured that out yet and because they're not out here my wife always asks me why my, my wranglers always have holes in the knees and they tear so quickly this is why because if you're not down in the ground you're not learning but if you go down here below the ragweed, 
there's actually a lot of symbioses. There's a symbiotic relation going on, relationship going on. I see, obviously, clover. I see soybeans. Now, they're stemmy. They're long and stemmy. They're not like a monoculture soybean necessarily, but they're growing down there, right? So the drought, you know, this guy kind of shaded them out, and, and there's probably quite a bit of moisture down in that little cluster, more so than there is out here. But uh, here's what I did. So everybody's familiar with soil samples, right? So I went out and, and pulled, pulled up some ragweed. I'll just lay that down and I'll flip this around real quick. Generally, when we collect a soil sample, we take what's called a composite soil sample, right? So this field I'm standing in now is, well, it's a big, it was one time a 13 acre monoculture field. I broke it up into about six different managements. So if this, let's say this one three acre plot right here was a field, I'd probably run around with a clean bucket, this spade, and I might take 10, 12, 15 different little, you know, zero to six inches, put them in my bucket, mix those up and then take my sub sort of subsample out of that, ship that off to the lab, right? That would iron out any, you know, slight differences in, you know, management or, or whatever's going on. Um, that's all fine and good, but to me, quite frankly, it, it, it's not as useful as what's going on right here around this plant in this area called the rhizosphere. So I pulled this, this is ragweed. It's a ragweed plant. I just pulled it out. I didn't get as much soil as I wanted to, but you see, I got some soil. So what I did is I went around and I pulled them out like this. And by the way, that's actually something neat I just noticed that's going on there. <laughs> um, I, I shook these, I beat these into a soil bag like that and put a little, obviously a little bit of soil into the bag. And then I went out and I pulled another ragweed plant. And, and that's the rhizosphere. That's the area in and around the root zone, right? That's, that is where the game is played. The microbial population diversity abundance is completely different right there in on and around that root zone as it is just out here now obviously there's other plants and other root zones but if you want to know what a particular plant is doing to restore regenerate and fix what you have just destroyed that's the way to do it and what i'm doing is i'm comparing the soil on that rhizosphere shaking that off into a bag and i'm comparing that with just a composite sample running around collecting soil from all over in the plot and what you start to see is, holy cow, the soil in and around that rhizosphere that I shook off of that right there is so much better than the soil everywhere else. Well, why is that? I mean, just think about that. I can give you an answer or 10. That's up to you. But I think it's better that all of us think about that. And, you know, a lot of times I'll have a client send me a picture like this one that you're looking at. And they'll say, hey, I have a lot of ragweed. Okay. What's the problem? Well, should I spray it? Should I mow it? Should I mow it, then disc it? What should I do? And I say, you should figure out why that ragweed is there. And if, if it's your desire to put another plant there, well, then you better study the characteristics of that plant, the characteristics of your soil, and put another plant there. Does this sound easy? Absolutely not. Can you see why people just spray Roundup and, and every other chemical, 2,4-D, you name it, on it? Absolutely. But I think people will slowly realize just how toxic and destructive these chemicals are. There's already 
been several lawsuits and I thought they were frivolous until I studied them and got to know um, one of the expert witnesses on the Monsanto trials. And it turns out that non-Hodgkin lymphoma is an absolute 110% result of consistently spraying Roundup or glyphosate on on your you know bushes, fields, grass, whatever you're spraying it on. So to me, you know, I, I'm more interested in if, if it, okay, when somebody says a lot, that's relative because I look around here and you might see a lot in this particular area, but I don't see a lot. We all have a threshold. To me, there's a patch. Okay, that's fine. Obviously, grasses are popping up here and there's a lot of legumes down there. You can't really see that. But to me, this is not a lot of ragweed. And I crimped down a significant amount more than that. So these plants are fixing my soil, right? They're fixing dirt. All right. And well, I'm cut, okay with that. Cut to the chase, Jason. Like just my point is it's a free, well, well, it's a free it's, seed I, that's when, actually when, doing better when than you most say, of the when you say it's fixing though, in other words, what's what is the what is the ragweed yeah. do that so, other plants don't do? And so what is it putting into your soil or enhancing about your soil that's beneficial to you? Yeah. So I, I put that one plant down. Here it is. I wanted to keep that to show and that's not the one. I pulled out too many. Um one of those plants. So so every plant has a different root. Okay, let's start above ground. Every plant has a different, uh, you know, people are using solar panels right now. These are solar, these are nature solar panels. Look at the different shape, different size, the way that that captures sunlight. Now I'll just go down there and pull out that soybean seedling. Obviously, you know, almost looks like clover. It's a trifoliate, um, different shape, different, you know, le lo um, layer. It, it sits differently. You go down even lower and there's a perennial clover. I'm not real good at holding this out there. There's a perennial clover, right? Now, when you go below ground to that root structure, it's the same thing. They all have a different root structure. Some, some are more fibrous, some stay shallow, some go deep. Uh, here's one of those ragweed plants I pulled out. And you can see kind of the deeper tap roots that were digging and they were pulling nutrients out of the ground. So all these nutrients that you add from a bag, Every single one of those micro, you know, macro micronutrients are in that soil. Nature did that for a very, very long time um, before what 1940 or whatever, when it when, when somebody started selling a cheat in a bag. So I guess my point is, is this is a completely free seed that I once cursed that is actually doing better at improving my soil than a lot of the 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 plantings that were where we're planning in my, if I wanted this to be a monoculture plot, this could be a monoculture plot, but I will make a guarantee right now. And that is we will kill at least one mature buck out of this corner. And we could probably kill most years. We kill two and we could probably kill three bow rifle, flintlock, whatever we want to do. And that's because nobody else in this neighborhood is managing their food this way. So I just, you know, the composite, to shaking the soil off at the root zone to me is, 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 is where the game is in the future. And that's what we've been doing for the last six years is, is taking all of those species that we put in bags and planting them in strips, stripping them out. So monoculture, obviously. And then we pull up the root zone. We shake the soil off the root zone. 
and we say, okay, this particular soil is, and there's two ways of looking at it. This particular soil in and around, let's say chicory is, is void or it's depleted of calcium compared to the composite sample just taken randomly in the, in the field. What does that mean? Well, that means that the plant could be taking up that calcium in excess more so than the rest of the, the field, right? So that plant would be a target species for me in a mix to obviously put more calcium into whitetails. And, and, you know, years ago, I didn't talk about this because, well, quite frankly, no one was catching on and no one's doing it. And I share it now with you and, and your listeners who are the best listeners in the country um, because that, that's, that's how we figure out what to put in a bag. And, you know, when I used to work with the conventional food plot guys, um, that's not how they figured it out. The way they figured it out was let's find species that are easy to market, um, cheap to obtain, and sometimes just sound sexy like sugar beets, which are probably one of the worst and most overrated species, especially as a monoculture. And they don't do well with, with other species, but they sound sexy, right? Sugar beets. So there's that. And uh, as I move, there's deer poop. And a completely, so more soybeans are popping up in this particular area. And then obviously my perennial clover. And one thing I want to mention as I get over here, this is, see if I can find one. I got a lot of bugs on me here. We're talking about medicinal value of having some of these uh, non-popular species. I know when I first started planting uh, or incorporating plantain into my food plot, uh, blends. There were some people online who laughed and, and asked me if that was a banana. And I still see that from time to time. Um, they kind of thought it was a joke. But plantain and chicory are, are very, very medicinal. And you kind of mentioned um, uh, another one yourself. Here it is. Dandelion. So plantain. Yeah, dandelions obviously are the same way. But, um, and this is, this was eaten prior to, or actually during the drought, this plantain was, it hasn't been touched since. Um, but it was a very, very important plant during, during the dry weather. And I'll let all the deer biologists try to figure that one out. Um, but I, again, that kind of shows you options. I like my deer to have a lot of options and, uh, you know, I want them to work. Well, you know, you talk about making them work and, it's not really that hard. You're just talking about you want them to be able to, it's actually a benefit for a, as a hunter because you're just talking about the fact that they need to move around within your plot there. So that's, right. that's working. Well, that's just maybe encouraging them to move to within shooting range of wherever you happen to be set up over the course of the evening or whatever. Yeah, I would rather I would rather have multiple plots that look like this in good hunting locations that are perhaps used by different doe groups or different bucks during the, the, the hunting season and spend time on those than have multiple monoculture plots. And I'm not saying you, you shouldn't. And actually, in this particular spot where I am right now, um, we might have more of a six or seven or eight way blend because we specifically look to target. Um, two animals and and hopefully get them out of here you know early <laughs> well and the thing is you know 
you talked about how you could have a monoculture plot there. But again, you mentioned it earlier, you've owned the farm for 17 years. I've known you for well over half of that anyway. And I can remember when you did have monoculture plots right there, probably in that field. So, yeah. you know, you're you're not doing things differently now uh, just for the sake of doing things differently. As you also said, you know, towards the beginning of our conversation today, let's face it, you make your living both in consulting and in selling seed. And the purpose of both of those things is to help people grow, manage, hold more deer, bigger deer on their properties. So it would be counterproductive to you as a businessman to do things like you're showing us today if they weren't also effective in growing bigger deer and having more successful hunting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, um, and now and then the other thing, let's jump into this, you know, because time is going on. I don't know if you realize this, but when you start talking about dirt and plants and roots, you can really go on. And um, yeah. I'm trying to con continually bring this back to, you know, the, the, the quote unquote average folks who are listening to the show and okay what does this mean to me what can i do uh, another big uh part of this and you touched on it is you don't really use much if any in the way of herbicides pesticides or bagged fertilizer anymore and i guess that's because you know, A, on the on the herbicide thing, you know, you're kind of like dispelling this whole notion of weeds. So you're you're OK with sort of letting whatever grows grow. And so therefore, you don't need to spray because you're not trying to kill half the things in the plot. And you like the bugs, too. So you're not trying to kill the insects and then the fertilizer. And I know this not because I'm smart about these things, but because you know, you've touched on it in some of your past columns. It's actually the diversity of the plants where some plants remove a certain something like a calcium that you just mentioned, but other plants maybe add a calcium back in and some plants remove a nitrogen, but other plants add a nitrogen back in. So you actually have this symbiotic relationship among those many plants in your plot sustaining soil health and building soil health over the long term yeah and and that I, I threw that ragweed plant down and i forgot to show you but wrapped around that ragweed was a perennial ladino clover that had nodulated had had fruit nodulation which means it was fixing nitrogen it was fixing atmospheric nitrogen into the soil and it was interesting that it was structurally wrapped around that that ragweed plant, but at the same time, it's growing right next to a ragweed plant. So those two plants were undoubtedly exchanging resources, um, nitrogen for who knows what, probably a calcium or a phosphorus um, or, or something along those lines, because we know, again, we know, and all the listeners now know that ragweed, and I'm just giving you one example because it's such a common plant here. Ragweed is very, very good at quote unquote sequestering or mining or uh, securing uh, specific nutrients in the soil. And, and this is that in and of itself, which nutrients people say it doesn't matter. That in and of itself 
at a dandelion that you mentioned. I, I've said this before. If you go pull dandelions out in the spring, which bees, by the way, will hammer. They just absolutely love dandelions. But if you pull them out in the spring, oftentimes you find a higher proportion of earthworms in and around that root channel of the dandelion. Again, why is that? It, it doesn't really matter. But earthworms, as we know, um, basically leave their, their feces, which, which is like a little fertilizer, a free fertilizer packet. And believe it or not, when you start to increase the density of earthworms, you, you can actually uh, amass a, a, a fairly significant amount of NPK in the whole nine yards. They've, they've analyzed um, the, the feces of earthworms, and it's pretty impressive. So uh, there, there's a lot, there is a lot of symbi- or are a lot of symbiotic relationships going on here for sure. And, and you know what, this, I should probably say that this particular plot, you know, if anybody farms, they've certainly heard the, the term cover crop. So farmers generally are using the growing season as their cash crop time period. And then, you know, when they, they harvest, they're either going to plant a cool season, you know, that they'll, you know, wheat, winter wheat or something that they'll then harvest next year, or they'll apply a cover crop to that field to do all the same, you know, follow all the same principles that we follow here, whether it's to, to hold soil, prevent erosion, um, you know, cycle carbon. You don't, you don't ever sequester carbon, you cycle carbon and the whole, and nine or 10 other different benefits. Our cover crop, if you will, in air quotes is, is to me is right now during the summer, right? A lot of guys who read the magazine and gals who read the magazine say, well, you know, I can't plant these big, you know, I don't have a lot of acreage to hunt. I can't plant these big monoculture soybean plots. Well, you don't need to, quite frankly. Um, you know, I, to me, summer, yeah, we have plenty of options for them all summer, all growing season. But this particular plot that I'm in right here, we are covering the soil. We're feeding the soil microbiome. We're increasing the nutrient density of the, of the forage in this field. And our cash crops coming up soon probably next week when we'll start planting right into this with the cool season species. So this is, you know, triticale, um, radish, turnips, you know, and, and a whole other host of, of plants, cool season so, plants that so, we so, will then harvest year off of. So again, I keep trying to bring it back to like where the rubber meets the road from a practical standpoint. So next week or in the very near future, as you approach the end of July into the beginning of August here. Practically speaking, what are you going to do that? You're going to come back out into this field where you are right now. You're going to crimp it again and drill those things that you just talked about into the yeah. soil. Yeah. So understand, I'm not going to look for a monoculture brassica plot to bow hunt over. Right. But I'm, I'm standing in this field right now and I'm finding areas that have past or prior plant residue like that. But there's not a whole lot. of I, I don't like naked soil. Well, that's technically not quite soil yet, um, or it is part of soil. But you see plant, you know, there's plant canopy here, plant canopy there. There's plenty of space in this food plot or this field, whatever you want to call it, for the cool seasons to realize when I drill them or broadcast them right into this field. So yes, that's what I will do is I will come in here and probably drill this particular field. You could broadcast it as well. I will use um, what nature is giving us right now, probably tomorrow afternoon, to our advantage. We're getting hot, super hot. 
Um, we, we are getting a little bit of rain, which I, I wish it would shut off. That's probably not what you're used to hearing others say. But I like to use nature and use this hot, dry period to scalp this particular plot. And uh, get, what does that it, mean? You know, what does that mean? Scalp it. Yeah. So bush hog, mow, whatever. I want to. I want to get rid of this canopy, this this top, the plant residue. I want to mow it down, and then that's going to open up all of these. This is the ideal. Let me flip this around. This is the ideal seed bed right here for me. I have years of of plant, or well, this past year plant residue, and as you dig down in there, you see this. Obviously, the soil is nice and moist. There's another rock. Um, but with this open soil, obviously anything I lay in there now is going to germinate. And since we have biologically active soils, because we've removed the toxins, the high salt fertilizers, the monocultures, all that garbage, that seed, once it hits that soil, which is biologically thriving, is going to absolutely, there's an old deer turd there too. So it's all decomposing right there. And, and again, you know, uh, <laughs> You don't have to have five or seven pounds of radish in, in a food plot. You only need a couple pounds per acre of radish to kill deer all winter long. They're not going to need that much radish. We've gone way overboard with this monoculture yield tonnage and all that. Well, garbage. it, it kind of comes to your, comes back to your point that you made earlier. You know, I'm starting to connect dots in my own mind. If you have an entire field of nothing but radishes and you have all these radishes upon radishes, the deer don't have to work for them. Whereas if you have a field that has 20 things in there that the deer like to eat and radishes are one of those 20 and a buck comes out in that field and he wants three radishes, well, he may have to walk a couple hundred yards to get three radishes. And along the way, he's going to find six other things that he wants to nibble on. And oh, by the way, he may make it into range of your blind as he looks for those three radishes. So again, it makes sense. Now, here's where I really want to draw it all to a conclusion. And again, I'm sure that you could speak for days, not hours, days on these things. And it is sort of fascinating, although I will be curious to see We'll look at the numbers for this episode as what is the what is the average appetite to listen to an hour about dirt? But uh, <laughs> when you when you kind of when you kind of bring it all together of what you're saying, I guess the question that I would ask again, as just a regular everyday bow hunter, like why isn't everybody doing it this way, Jason? It sounds easier. Is it actually easier? Are you telling me? that I can literally save the, the money and time that I would spend on chemicals and synthetic fertilizer, and I can just go out with, you know, an ATV or a side-by-side -side and crimp. And like you've talked about, you've even seen people just literally drive over stuff, even drive a car out into a food plot and use the, the tires to just smash down, you know, old growth and and plant new stuff. And like you said, you can broadcast it or you can drill it. But I mean, it sounds pretty basic. It sounds pretty simple. Like this is easier, right? You're going to plant these things. You're not going to get bent out of shape over every weed so to speak, that grows in there. And, and oh, by the way, the deer really like it. And oh, by the way, it's better for the soil. I mean, like, what's the downside here? What's the rub? What am I missing? So I'm laughing because 
traditionally the most difficult thing for me when working with clients, especially in states, as you know, like Pennsylvania, southeastern U.S., um, and even New England, traditionally it has been trying to convince them that you've got to stop killing immature bucks and, and, and teaching them what a mature buck looks like. That's always been the banging my head off the desk. This has been harder than that exponentially, and it's actually it's entertaining for me, which may irritate some clients. But I got a call from a, a client the other day, um, the day I got back from vacation, so I was fully charged, and he actually bought my stuff for a while, uh, drank the Kool-Aid and saw just very typical responses that that he couldn't apply the, the four or five inches to his head to and fix. He got frustrated, bought a competitor's seed and had the same results, tried to call them. They wouldn't answer the phone and talk to him and help him. He called me and I said, well, what did they say? And he laughed. He said, I get your point, um, but I'm, I'm done listening to all that garbage. Please help me. And it was so funny to me hearing how frustrated he was, Christian. It was like, did you ever go to the dentist for a cavity or for a, a really bad, like the dentist made you wait four or five days. You're in so much pain. They've given you that garbage painkiller that doesn't work as good as the whiskey. And you're just in so much pain. That's where he was. Why don't people do this? Why is this, um, why is this so difficult? Well, do you believe that exercise and eating good is better for your health? I mean, I think most Americans probably wouldn't argue with that, but have you sat in an airport? I get to sit in a lot of airports or walked through a, a big chain grocery store and watched what people put in their carts. We know cancer is, is probably um, one of the results of smoking cigarettes. Have you stood outside in break rooms in corporate America or wherever and watched people smoke cigarettes? It, it's all very obvious. But it, it's, it's only sexy on YouTube and in some of the videos. And then people start and they get frustrated. To me, the funny part is the frustrations that they're seeing, um, weeds that I never saw before, um, stunted plants, uh, you name it. There's a dozen of those. Those are all signs that you're succeeding. They're all signs that you're succeeding. It's kind of like when you have a major illness or you have chronic anything. All right. All right. So, so I got to interrupt you. I got to, I got to interrupt you. So, so are you saying that it's, it's not necessarily easier or though, or it is easier, but it won't feel like it when you start doing it. It's easy in practice, but it's very difficult between the ears. The five inches between the ears, people get frustrated because like you said, when I walked out into this field, that looks like a weedy mess. The, the peer pressure, um, and the people just, they, they, they fail. But also, we've been, we've been brainwashed to believe that the best clover is the tall, um, you know, good-looking clover with, with leaf, leaflets the size of my hand, right? That's what we've all been brainwashed. To me, the best clover is the clover, when I go out here and there's a bunch of plant residue rolled down by my crimper, which means my crimper, my tractor, um, other things have stepped on it. And there's a couple pieces or there's one piece or there's a whole patch of clover that then persisted up through that and grew, right? I mean, you and I talk sports all the time. Um, you know, the, the quarterback isn't the kid in youth, youth football who got hit once and cried to his dad and said, take me home in the station wagon, I'm out, right? It's the kid who gets hit and he gets up laughing with his, with his uh, mouthpiece hanging out of his face mask. So I personally think that in nature, only the strong survive. 
And if that particular clover found its way through all that mess of whatever walked through that field, that's the clover I want deer to eat, not a whole monoculture of clover that have been bred for specific traits that we think are important. So yes, it's difficult, but it's easy. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but you know, I, I think you have to, you have to ask people. And I just, that's what I asked this client. I said, before we even talk, and we talked for an hour because he was in pain. I see you looking at your clock, but don't just do this because you saw it on, on YouTube and you think it's sexy and it sounds great. Yes. You can save a lot of money. Go back to your reasoning for doing it, right? Mine was I had personal health issues related to um, toxins, Roundup, 2,4-D, stress, chronic stress, et cetera. If you want to get away from things like that and you want to grow nutrient-dense food, you mentioned yourself, this used to be a monoculture soybean field. Forward soybeans, um, I would put manure on them and I'd heavily fertilize them. They looked amazing. And yes, we killed deer, but we had specific bucks that would leave this property, go, we just had a heck of a uh, uh, haze blow over the field. Um, they would go four or five miles as a crow flies to, to strip bark off of hemlock trees because of the secondary compounds in those trees. And that was quite simply as a biologist, the only thing I needed to see and hear then uh, to then realize that, okay, we deer are looking for more than just monoculture, not picking on soybeans, but monoculture, anything. Well, I mean, it uh, it's definitely it's definitely attractive to me because, like you said, I, yeah, I mean, I guess we're all good at giving advice, but not good at taking our own advice. You gave some great <laughs> examples there. You know how many how many people who smoke know it's bad for you? How many people who eat pop tarts know that they're bad for them, et cetera, et cetera? Lucky so, charms are supposed to be really good for you now. That's what I hear. So, well, they are fortified with with thirteen essential vitamins and minerals. Um, but that being as it's may, we, you know, we are good at knowing things in our head. Hey, again, it comes back to faith. You know, you sit in you sit in church on a Sunday morning. You know. Uh, this is a great truth of of all, all spirituality. There's knowing something in your head, Jason, and then there's actually knowing it in your heart and allowing it to change the way that you live your life, right? And so, yeah, we all know things in our minds that doesn't necessarily translate to our hands and our feet and the actions that we take uh, with how we conduct ourselves and how we spend our money, etc. So, yeah, this whole thing is, is great, though, because I think in our hearts, uh, gosh, you know, like if I poured if I poured a glass of Roundup out of a bottle and handed it to people, do you think I could get one in a million people to drink a glass of, of glyphosate? I do. I could get one in a million people to drink it? Yeah, I, I think so. The, some of the farmers have been heavily sold that they need it, that it saves, that 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 it feeds the world, that, that that they couldn't produce the yields. Yes. No, but you know what I mean. I I think that I think that people generally know that we don't want to put a bunch of chemicals into our bodies, and I think that we don't want to. Like I always point out, you know, we're fond as hunters of saying like that we hunt and we have all this organic meat, but I'm always like, well, actually, if you tested all of our venison to your point you mentioned it earlier i don't think that the average deer if you hunt in farm country is organic because if they're out in those bean fields those corn fields 
they're eating all kinds of herbicides and pesticides every year. And that stuff accumulates in their bodies, just like mercury does in fish from Lake Ontario. It's the reason that we don't eat lake trout from Lake Ontario, because they're high in PCBs and mercury. Well, for, forever chemicals is the new buzzword. I'm here to tell you that they're all forever chemicals. I test my soils for glyphosate because the farmer used to use it. I, I used to use it. My glyphosate numbers are way down, but my AMPA numbers are still very, very high. What is AMPA? Well, glyphosate breaks down into a metabolite called AMPA that, by the way, we don't have any research on. Some claim it's far worse than glyphosate. The bottom line is we need to stop doing things that have all these unintended consequences. The other thing I want to mention that, so I'm also working out here because obviously I'm a consultant. I can't just sit on here with you all day. So I made an observation here. One of my neighbors has monoculture soybeans. He's spraying them right now for beetles. So I was curious, how bad are the beetles on my field? Well, I look at my field, I look at the soybeans, which again, I have to work to find them. They're scattered. And I have not seen, I see some beetles flying around and testing plants, but I do not see any massive beetle destruction. If you were to hop through that hedgerow right there, you would see where the farmer sprayed. And by the way, he took out all of the beneficial insects as well. So now he's depleted the predators of those those pest insects, and he's in a complete spoon-fed, the whole system's relying on him. I'm over here looking at a massive number of insects. Now, is there contamination and drift? Possibly, which is why I'm buying the farm next to me, or one of the reasons, but I'm looking out here and I'm not seeing a significant threshold. I am beating all kinds of insects off of me, but healthy plants grown in this system, by the way, we didn't get into insect pressure at all. That's a whole other podcast. Healthy plants, when, it, when an insect jumps on a healthy plant and nibbles on it, um, you can test the bricks of, of the plant. If it's a bricks of, say, 12 or 13, which means nothing to you, um, it, the, the insect will likely leave and look for a plant that's not in as good a shape, which is right across the hedgerow, by the way. And the bricks reading on his plants, he doesn't know this, but I test it. The bricks reading on those is like four and five and sometimes lower. Hang on. So what are you doing? You putting on your ninja costume and sneaking across the hedgerow there at night and getting a sample of your neighbor's soybean leaves? No, I just walk over whenever it's convenient and I grab them. Oh my goodness. Scandalous. Doesn't take, Scandalous. Doesn't take a lot. Doesn't take a lot. <laughs> but the point is, you, you know, for some of your southern listeners right now, they're, they're they panic over army worms and you know, every year it's it's a different species. Every year it's army worms, but other other insect species. Those particular insects do not become a problem in a, in a situation like this because for a number of reasons. One of them is that healthy plants are not, let me put it this way. You've, everybody has been in the argument that coyotes don't track down healthy, mature bucks or does and, and eat them, right? I mean, wolves, different story, but coyotes are looking for carry-on. They're looking for, you know, the, the doe that you, you know, wounded or, or whatever, got sick from whatever. It's the same thing with insects. They're looking for a plant that is already stressed. It's given off pheromones that it's stressed, and it's going to go knock it out of nature. That's how nature works. That's why things get sick, and that's why it's very important to build this microbiome in the soil just as, as it's important to build it in our guts. Well, you made a lot of good points, and it's funny because we're probably way over an hour, so we've we got are. to wrap it up. But there are things, like you said, gosh, 
I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it depends on we'll see how this episode does, Jason. Proof is in the pudding. But I mean, we could absolutely do a whole hour on insects. We can also do a whole hour on how soil health ties in with chronic diseases of wildlife. Yes. Because yes. you you touched on it in some columns. There's some really fascinating research that ties soil health and the, the um, quantity of organic matter in soil to long-term viability of CWD prions. There's probably other deer diseases that, you know, shows some correlation between soil health and disease prevalence. So, I mean, there's a lot of layers to the onion here, and we only peeled back a couple today, but um, why don't we end with this? I mean, if you if you manage to listen to this whole thing, yeah, you know, chances are the people who are still with us are pretty darn interested in this topic. I know that you have you have your own resources. People can connect with you on, um, you know, social media. I think uh, you've got your own podcast. You've got probably some YouTube videos. So why don't you just do that and tell people how they can maybe tie in with the expert a little more permanently than they do just on a one off podcast here. Well, my my favorite is my column because the column is fun. You you obviously have to narrow it down to uh, one or two very very important items and go after it. But you know, as you know, there are limitations. Um, I like to do a deep dive. If you can't figure that out, um, I just got zapped on my own fence. But uh, yeah, I, my podcast is really where I do a deep dive. It's just a drop time podcast and uh, taking subjects like this and just just tearing it up for people who enjoy to get more in depth, more than a 10 minute, uh, you know, web show or whatever. So yeah, the drop time podcast is fun. Those are just my bees. These are all, that's, that's a whole other topic in and of itself. These are all swarms that were captured. I, I wanted, I wanted bees. I didn't want to buy bees from somebody else. I wanted bees that nature already vetted for me and said, Hey, this particular, it's like a, it's like a clan or a tribe separating from the, the pack and making their own. These were all uh, trapped by a friend of mine and uh, we brought them here and reintroduced them back. So yeah, the, the podcast is where we do it all. But uh, I, I enjoy being on your podcast and I get a lot of good feedback from that. Well, listen, man, thanks for making time for us today. It's uh, it's funny, you know, you, you didn't really want to plan a topic and I didn't know where we were going to go. And I kind of am still amazed, even though it's just happened. So I can't say it's unbelievable. It just happened. I've got to believe it. But like you walked out into your field with a spade and spent over an hour just showing me roots and plants. And <laughs> you somehow made it fairly interesting. So for that, I tip my cap to you, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.